1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 22. This is the third, are we on three? This, this is three, right? The third, third time we've gone through this particular set of verses, verses 12 through 22. Uh, if you want to catch up, the other two are on the podcast and you can look those up at your, at your leisure um, and see what we've covered. So what we've covered so far is how to be at peace. How to be at peace with your leaders, how to be at peace with uh, lazy, idle, tired, and weak people, how to be at peace with evil people, and today we're going to talk about how to be at peace in oneself, and how to be at peace with spiritual stuff. Now, there are four sections there, and then there's a fifth addendum. The four sections are how we are at peace among ourselves, with each other. So the first four deal with this relationship. This, the last one, the spiritual things, deals vertically and kind of ethereal with spiritual realm type things. But we're going to read them. Let's dive into the text and read chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourself, among yourselves, and urge, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, and see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, holding fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Remember that we are examining how to be at peace with one another. There's that phrase there in verse uh, 13, the end of the verse. It says, be at peace among yourself. Among yourselves. He's talking to the church. Be at peace among yourselves. It is a great encouragement to read the New Testament letters and realize that Paul constantly had to address how to be at peace with one another. I'll tell you why it's a major encouragement. Because it means that we're not far off. It means that we're not abnormal. When you have conflict with brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a normal thing. And there is an answer. And don't get me wrong, you don't have to have that conflict. You don't have to be at conflict with each other. You can live in harmony together. Indeed, at Sovereign Grace, I feel like we, we live in harmony Together, there's not conflict. There's, I don't get phone calls. He said, she said, this, and I, don't, I don't get those here. I, and I've been at other churches. I got them there. I don't get those here. Here, and I'm, I think sometimes I don't get them because people call me and go, he said, and I go, have you talked to him? And they go, no, and I go, you can't talk to me. And then, <laughs> then they hang up the phone and they have to go talk to them or not. I mean, that's the way we operate. So this is different. It's different and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and we're trying our best to obey scripture and this is, this is how it should be. And so I want to commend you as we start that this is something I see in the people who come here regularly. This is something I see in you that I love about you. 
that while we have troubles, we don't have troubles like I've seen in other places. We, we are striving to wrestle together for the unity, as the Bible says, wrestle together for the unity of the faith, that we are wrestling with one another. So here we see how to be at peace in oneself. Look down at verse 16. He gives these imperatives. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing or pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances. He gives you those three imperatives. And he's talking about how to be at peace. So we've talked about how to be at peace with the, uh, the lazy and the idle and the weak. You admonish them. You encourage the faint-hearted or the people who are tired. And you crutch or lift up the people who are broken, sick, and weak. That's what you're supposed to do as a body with other people. And then how do we handle the wicked? We do not return evil for evil. When people do evil to us, we do good to them. That's how we handle them. And then now we come to ourselves. How to be at peace in ourselves. What is your responsibility for peace? Paul says at one point, insofar as it depends on you, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So how do we do this? And he gives you three imperatives. First, rejoice always. Second, pray constantly. Three, give thanks in all things. Now this peace, this internal peace, is elusive in our world. In, in our world, in our context, in our cultural context, this peace is elusive. We don't, we don't find this often among our peers. We are an anxious bag of worms as a nation. Our people are so stimulated and so in touch with everything at all times that we're anxiety-ridden people. We fail to have peace in our culture. This is a natural thing for us to want to have, and we don't have it here. And I think that the study of what we are reading today will answer much of this. First, rejoice always. This concept is in all times or in all spaces. This is in every time period that you are in. Rejoice always in every stage of life you're in. Rejoice. That's what this is implying. It's implying that at every stage of your life, in every circumstance, in every time period in which you pass, you are to be rejoicing. The concept of rejoicing is literally to take joy in. Did you know the Bible tells you to be happy? Did you know it tells you that? We got a, there's a book on the back table by Randy Alcorn, Happiness. It's huge. He goes through and he talks about how often the Bible tells you you are to be happy. Happy. We translate the word blessed in the Bible often, and it's because we're uncomfortable with someone telling us that you're supposed to be happy when you're being persecuted. Right? Or you're supposed to be happy when things go wrong. The Greek word there is makarios, and, and he's talking often about being happy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the, all that. Happy. That's what that means. It means happy. And if you do a simple word study, you can't dance around it. It literally means to be happy. 
So here Paul is telling you, rejoice or take joy and be happy, be joyful. And the word here that he's using is kairos, right? Like be joyful, have some joy in your life. Be joyful over these things. Now, most often when this word is used, when the word rejoice is used, it's used in context with the community, with other people, rejoicing in each other. That's when it's most often used. It's used elsewhere as well, but it's, it's most often used in the context of rejoicing with one another. It's taking joy in each other and our relationships with each other. And what greater, obvious, more obvious truth is there that when you have deep, abiding, holy friendships that have walked with you for a long time, that they bring you joy. They bring you joy. I have friends who I've walked with for, my, for much of my adult life that, I, that know me inside and out. And I don't see them often. But you know, I'm, I'm describing this on purpose. You, you show up to a place where that friend is that you haven't seen for a long time. And for some odd reason, you just start to cry. And it's weird because I'm a man. You're not supposed to cry when you see somebody and you're going to have like milkshakes. So I show up and I just start tearing up and... And why? It's because I'm so overjoyed to see my brother or my sister in Christ again that it just overwhelms. And, and I start, and I'm not sad. I'm like, yeah, right? Because it's, I get to see them. That's the joy that, that is often referred to in this text. I rejoice over you. I rejoice at seeing you. I rejoice at being with you. That's, that's, community that's being at peace with one another being at peace with one another means that you are actively striving to rejoice over one another you are striving to rejoice over one another this is something that we do so how do we do this what do we do to kind of aim for this and and what does the scripture tell us that we should do in order to rejoice in all times. Well, first, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. Remember that love rejoices with truth. Love rejoices with truth. Those are married. Love and truth are married together in Scripture. When you have love, there is truth with it. You cannot have love and lie or love and deceit. We are truthful with each other. Love rejoices with the truth. It is, it is a dance of joy when you embrace truth. So saturate yourself with the truth. Saturate yourself with truth so that you can rejoice in each other. Your conversations ought to be heavy laden with truth. It ought to be thick with truth and deep truth and, and deep abiding truth that, that wrestles with one another, that Strong truth that comes out in love. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 7, and Philippians chapter 2, verse 28, tell us to rejoice over brothers. To rejoice over the brothers. We, are, we find our rejoicing in truth, saturating ourselves with truth, and we find ourselves in living in community. We find rejoicing in living with community with the brothers. So we are to strive to be in community together. And I love what Weston said in our devotion this morning because he didn't know what we were, or I mean, he could have read ahead, but he didn't know what I was going to say here. 
And that's exactly what this is about. Living in community together to exalt the Lord, right? To, as a community, we praise the Lord together. We live together. So we rejoice with one another. Your successes are my successes. Your joys are my joys. Your work is, I delight in it. Your struggles are my struggles and I rejoice when we overcome them. That's the beauty of community. We also look to rejoice in all circumstances. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds in James, right? This is, you are to rejoice in every circumstance, good, bad, everything. You are to rejoice in all circumstances. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, we have Paul models for us rejoicing in the growth of others. Rejoicing in the growth of others. We run here. We run the race that is set before us. We obey the admonishment of Paul to run the race that is set before you. And we run it together. We run it together. So when our brothers and sisters reach a milestone, we leap for joy. That's what Christianity is. We, we love when the brothers and sisters reach a milestone that they've been going for. We love when goals are met, when, when, a, when somebody memorizes large chunks of scripture and they come to you and they say, I memorized this, I, I leap inside. How beautiful it is when somebody goes, we were struggling with this and now we no longer struggle with it. We've, we've got victory over it in Christ Jesus and he has showed us a better way and we are living that way. We rejoice in that because we run together. We don't run alone. We run together. We rejoice always. Rejoice is often the result of deep community with the people of God. So first, to be at peace within yourself, rejoice always. And how do you rejoice? By being in community with the people of God, by saturating yourself with truth, by rejoicing over other people's victories, and by rejoicing in all circumstances, in every circumstance, rejoice. Second admonition there is to pray constantly or pray without without ceasing. Now this is a fun one because so many people uh, misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying that you have to cloister yourself into a closet 24 hours a day, seven days a week and never talk to anybody. That would contradict the first one, right? If you're to rejoice always, and if we are to understand the word rejoice as developing out of community, you can't cloister yourself in a closet. The Bible also says to work, to find a job and labor. Well, you can't do that if you're in a closet all the time with your eyes closed praying. There is a designated time in which you ought to have in your schedule for prayer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it really well in his book Life Together when he says, there is a time for work and there is a time for praying. And both are imperative. And the time for praying ought to be, the, the sit-down, focused time for praying ought to be daily and small. And the time for work is going to take more. There are six days for work in the Bible, one day for rest. Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out, why do you think he made it six days and one for rest? Because the rest is supposed to be shorter. The work is supposed to be longer. 
Likewise with prayer. So it is that your labor and prayer is supposed to be a designated small part of your day. However, here we are told to pray without ceasing. In Romans, we are told to pray continuously. In Philippians, we're told to pray without ceasing. This is a common phrase that Paul uses. We are told to do this. Pray constantly. This is to pray when the opportunity arises, never forgetting to do so. Paul, in his very letter to the Thessalonians, has already said, I remember you before God the Father, thanking Him every time in my prayers for you. Every time He thinks of you, He prays for you. This is what, uh, this is what your pastor does. This is what I do. Every time I think of you, there's a prayer. There's a prayer that goes up. And it's because of these verses. This is a conviction based on these scriptures that we are to pray continuously. So you come across my mind, you get prayed for. Often you get a text, I prayed for you. Right? That's normal. This is normal behavior for Christians. We are to pray without ceasing. As the opportunity arises, pray. Paul models this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He remembers them before God the Father. In chapter 2, verse 13, he's thanking God for them constantly. These are, these, Paul models this even for the Thessalonians. Prayer is a lifestyle. Prayer is something that is a lifestyle, a continuous open connection between you and God. Think about that just for a second. You have the ear of God all the time. You can speak directly to him because of what Jesus has done. Think about, like, is it any wonder that Jesus says, if you have the faith of mustard seed, you can move a mountain? You can tell a tree to uproot and go into the ocean and it'll obey? Is it any wonder that Jesus says that when you have a verbal connection with the creator of the universe because Jesus has saved you and redeemed you and rescued you in Christ Jesus, you have have life and life abundant. You can actually talk to God and he listens and responds. That's crazy. Own it. Own that truth. Live that truth. Speak constantly to him, knowing that he has all things and all circumstances in his hands. Speak constantly to him. Prayer is a lifestyle. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Christ instructs his disciples to pray and not lose heart. You want to know how to not lose heart, how not to become depressed over the things in this world? Pray. Pray and do not lose heart. Prayer is connected to perseverance. In Romans chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And just before we move on from that passage, listen to that again. Rejoice in hope. The action is to rejoice. The subject is in hope. Rejoice in the hope. Then be patient in tribulation. So be patient in tribulation. And then here's the next one. Be constant in prayer. Prayer is the condition in which you are to be constant. Prayer is the condition in which you are to live prayerfully. You are to live being in prayer constantly. Being constant in your prayers. Prayer is the condition in which you are to live. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 reminds us to pray and make supplication for the saints. Prayer is more 
than simply talking to God. It is actually asking Him for the good of those around us. Making supplication on behalf of others and interceding on behalf of others for the sake of their good. The third admonition here, so we've got rejoice always, we've got pray constantly or without ceasing, and then we've got give thanks in everything. Give thanks in everything. Now the Greek word that's used here is eucharisto. And that should strike some of you who have a Latin or even Catholic background, Eucharist. Right? It's the, it's the term that we use for communion. Did you know that, that term meant Thanksgiving? The term we used for communion when we take the body and bread of Jesus Christ and we give thanks for it. That communion when we remember Jesus Christ's body broken for us, blood poured out for us that we do every week here and we give thanks for that. That is, that is the Eucharist. That is Eucharisto. That's the, the term here. Giving thanks in everything. Give thanks in all things here. This is the idea that you are to be grateful in all things. This use gives us insight into the foundation of gratitude. Eucharist, that word, gives us the, the insight to the foundation of gratitude. The foundation of gratitude is remembering Christ's body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. Remembering the cross is the foundation for gratitude. Remembering the cross is the foundation of gratitude. Understanding that Jesus died and rose again is the beginning of gratitude for all things. This is beautiful that we understand gratitude in all things. Now, if you want to cultivate gratitude, you want to cultivate thanksgiving, there's a really, really easy way to do it. It's incredibly easy. Just start making a list of everything you're thankful for all day and write stuff on it that you're not thankful for. Honestly, write stuff on it that you're not thankful for. My kid threw up on me. Thank you, Lord, for a good digestive tract. I didn't get enough sleep. Thank you, Lord, for the energy to move past not getting enough sleep. A.K.A. naps. <laughs> right? Like, write down things that you are thankful for. Write down things that you're not thankful for and be thankful for them. Train yourself in gratitude. You can. We are simple creatures, humans. Human beings are simple creatures. You can train a human to do almost anything. Almost. You can train a human to do almost anything. I think that you could succeed at this if you just put it out and did it. Be thankful in all things. And why? Look at the end there of verse 18. For this is the will or the pleasure of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will or the pleasure of God for you. Let that sink in. How you live at peace with each other and one another. This, that phrase, by the way, marks from 12 all the way through 18. So all of it is marked by that phrase. That phrase, this is the will or pleasure of God for you. That phrase is marking the entire thing. So what we see here is that how we live together and how we strive to be at peace with one another how we, that's an interesting phrase. Remember, the book of Hebrews calls it striving or wrestling to be at peace with one another. 
We strive to be at peace with one another. How we do that is a pleasure and a delight to God. Let that sink in. You bring pleasure to God when you delight in one another and when you live in community together well. You bring pleasure to God. You bring delight to God. Our relationships show the glory of God, particularly his love. Remember 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in or through us. Right? So he is manifest among us. You want people to see God? Love each other well. By this, they will know that you are my disciples, how you love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another and that you love everyone. Love is the picture by which God shows who he is to the world. And our love is the way he does it. Now, dealing with spiritual things is the next point. So we've got how to be at peace with yourself. And that's rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything. Just, I missed that, just that note right there. Everything. I mentioned it, like write down things you're not thankful for. That's everything, right? Give thanks in everything. For this is the will of God for you, that you would have delight in in each other and delight in him. Now we move to this addendum. What happens with the spiritual? What about the spirits? What about spiritual things? Now, there's some things we got to deal with here because we don't speak Greek. And there's a way that he has put things in here that probably give us some hints as to what's going on in First Thessalonians, in, in the Thessalonican church. Uh, so let's read here verse uh, 19 through 22 and be reminded. Do not quench the spirit. I'm going to read it the way that it's written in the Greek text, if that's okay. Um, I'll read English words, don't worry, but it'll be in the order that it's here. The spirit do not quench. The prophecies do not despise, but test all. What is good, hold fast to. From every form of evil, abstain. Did you notice where he put the verb? He put it at the end. He says, the spirit do not quench. Prophecies do not despise. He puts them at the end. And what he's doing is emphasizing our reaction to these things. Just like we read about with, just like we talked about three weeks ago when we talked about evil people and people who do evil to you. That's just going to happen. It's just going to happen. Likewise, the Spirit is just going to move. The Spirit is going to do things. And you might get frustrated by it. People are going to prophesy. And you might have trouble with it. People are going to do evil. You will have to deal with it. Things that are evil are going to come upon Hold fast to what is good. You're going to have to. Temptations are going to come. You're going to have to abstain. These are just conditions of life. They're going to happen. So you have to know how to respond. So he's emphasizing our response here when we hear these things. So the spirit do not quench. Prophecies do not despise. Uh, what is, to what is good, hold fast. And from evil, abstain. The verb is last. Because the Spirit is going to move with or without you, your responsibility is to respond in Christ's 
likeness. Your responsibility is to respond when the Spirit moves. And when people are speaking things into your life, you are to respond appropriately. So that is what you do. So let's deal with these one at a time. The Spirit, do not quench. Do not quench the Spirit. The the word quench is to hinder or to stifle or to hold back, to kind of push it in a closet. Now, uh, in Thessalonica... Uh, there's, there's two major things that most theologians think about here. They either think that Thessalonica was hiding gifts or saying to people that there's some spiritual gifts that they're pushing off to a corner and saying, no, no, we don't do that here. We need to put that off to the side. Or um, more likely that he's talking about people who are lazy and idle. And the reason that I would tend on that side is because all through the letter, he has talked about people who are lazy and idle. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he talks about people who are lazy. So how does one quench the Spirit? How does one quench the Spirit? Well, one way is to lack discipline. Lack discipline to be lazy. Jump over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 12, one page. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness or is lazy and not in accordance with the traditions or the practices that we gave, that, we, that you received from us. For you yourself know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, do not let him eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such a person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. That was a very, very long way of Paul saying, get a job and do some work and contribute to the community. That's what Paul's saying. It's very straightforward. Long, drawn, typical Paul. He wrote that in the second letter. He wrote it in the second letter because this will quench the spirit. Laziness and idleness, undisciplined work, undisciplined effort in, in your Christian walk, being lazy will quench the spirit. It will stifle the spirit. Second way that, that uh, the spirit is often stifled in my personal experience and with experience with the body of Christ is when we harbor secret sins. So laziness stifles the spirit. The second one is harboring secret sins. I just don't hear from God. I don't, I don't hear from, I read my Bible and it's like nothing happens. One of the first questions to ask yourself is, am I hiding some sort of sin that I've not confessed and I'm not willing to let go of? You will quench the spirit of God because he will wait for you. Oh, he's a patient God. He will wait for you to obey. And he will stand there until you do it. But you will quench the movement of the Spirit. You will quench it. So here, 
we see harboring secret sins. In particular, James chapter 5, verse 15 through 16 talks about that. Confessing your sins one to another so you're not harboring secret sins. And then we have Ephesians chapter, chapter 4, verse 25 through 32, which I just want to read to you on quenching the Spirit. Listen to these words of Paul. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work. There's that not, not being idle again. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So one of the ways we keep our mouths pure in what we say, uh, but only such as what is Good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We quench the spirit when we let bitterness in and when we let ourselves gossip and when we let ourselves deceive and when we do things that are not uplifting to the body of Christ, we quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. Second, prophecies do not despise. Now, I just want to caveat here. The term prophecy is a broad one. And depending on who you're talking to, you've got different definitions. So when you speak to someone who is Christian, who is claiming to know Christ, remember to drill down the definition. Because some people say prophecy is what the Old Testament prophets did only. Which means they stood up and they future foretold. They told things that were coming in the future. Now, just a caveat. When you are talking about foretelling prophecy, it is always specific and never ambiguous. It is always specific and never ambiguous. If someone says something that is a prophecy that doesn't make any sense and does not match with Scripture, then according to Deuteronomy, that is a false prophet. It must match with the rest of Scripture, and it must make sense. So when somebody comes and goes, I have a word from the Lord for you, cucumbers fly west at night. No. Stop it. That is not a prophecy. That is you being weird. Cut that out. Now, people do come in the Old Testament with prophecies that might have sounded a little strange. Like when Ezekiel stands up and goes, you know, there's going to be this big tree. And this big tree, birds of every color are going to come and land in this tree. And they're going to come and land in this tree, which is the root of Jesse that's going to grow up. And there's going to be this tree and it's going to attract all kinds of birds. And we know because of what he says next that he's talking about Gentiles coming and nesting in the tree of Jesus Christ. And we know because Ezekiel says it next. It's clear. Future telling prophecy is specific and clear. It's not ambiguous and weird. So that's the first side note. Second side note, 
Prophecy also has this broad term that some of our brothers and sisters like to use it. I'm a prophet of the Lord. Maybe, maybe. You can use the term broadly. We'll give them grace. I am a pastor. I stand up every week and I proclaim the word of God. I do not call myself a prophet. But I have brothers and sisters who do the same thing. And I call them brothers and sisters because they believe in Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. And they stand up every week and they proclaim the word of God. They proclaim the scripture. They read it out loud and they talk about it. And they call themselves prophet. Now, I think that's a misuse of the term. But I can, I'm, I'm not a fool. I'm, I can give them charity. I can understand their language. I can talk their language. It's okay for them to use a word with, and use it with a broader definition than I prefer. I'm not so arrogant and egotistical that they have to land on my definition. But I do want to understand what they mean. Often what those people mean when they say I'm giving you a prophecy means that they're going to talk about the Bible. That's fine. That's speaking the word of God. And that's the broadest term for prophecy that you can possibly get. Speaking the word of God. The third thing that people will do and call prophecy is they will speak into your life. They will speak into your life. They will, they will step on your toes is the way that Southern Baptists always say it. You're stepping on my toes now. Right? That's the way Southern Baptists always say it. They will, they will meddle. That's the way that people in the South tend to say it. You're meddling. Right? That's, they will get involved in your business and they will say things to you that have to do with your business. And if it's something that they feel like the Lord has shown them in Scripture that they're admonishing you towards, They'll call it prophecy. Again, I don't use that term for that, but that's what they're doing. Now, Paul, when he uses the term in 1 Corinthians, says if anybody prophesies, so this happens, people prophesy. If anybody prophesies, make sure they do it a certain way. And then he says that there's a certain type of prophecy. They see the, the, those three types that I talked about, foretelling, and telling the word of God and scriptural proclamation, these are all, they all fall under the test of does it mesh with the rest of scripture? Because if it goes with the rest of scripture, you're good. Then you can listen to it. But if it doesn't, if it somehow contradicts the Bible, then it's a false prophet. And in the Old Testament, those people were supposed to be stoned. This is a serious issue to God. Do not claim this... Heads, just a warning. Do not claim to speak for God unless you're sure. Unless you're willing to die for it. He takes seriously when you say, I am giving a prophecy in the name of Jesus Christ. He takes seriously that and you will lose your life. You will lose that battle. You will. God is gracious and patient to people, isn't he? Because how many people do you know who have done that and God has been gracious and patient and has let them live? This is a serious issue. So the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, we are told that prophecy is to encourage and to build up and to console one another. So when you give a prophecy to somebody, when you prophesy to somebody, when you are admonishing somebody and you're using this idea that you are giving the word of the Lord to somebody, it is to encourage, to build up, or to console, to bring consolation to them. That's what the prophecy of the Lord does. That's what the word of God does. 
That's what it does. It convicts, which is a form of encouragement. It builds up the other person. And it consoles the other person. In 1 John 4, verse 1, we're told not to trust all prophecies. Remember that when people speak, it is second to the word of the Lord. No matter how great a pastor, no matter how wonderful a speaker, no matter how fantastic a theologian, open the Bible first. Open the Bible first. Read the Bible. When you start having some difficulties understanding a passage of Scripture, fine, go, get a the- go read a theologian's book. Call, your, call me, call Andrew, call, call somebody and talk about it. Call a brother or sister in the community and talk about it. Like, yes, this is what you are to do. And at the same time, the Scripture is priority. It is first. So we use it to determine what is right and what is wrong. Do not trust all prophecies but search the scripture and examine them to see if they are right. The third thing here that we see when dealing with, uh, with this is, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. A good way to put this is chew up the meat, spit out the bones. You're going to hear a lot of great things in life. There are thousands of wonderful books about God and about Jesus. All of them are written by men and women. Not being sad, I'm saying mankind. We, all of them are written. They're written by us. And we are, are fallible. Scripture is infallible. We are fallible. So when you hear prophecies or when you hear people proclaiming things or theologians talking about things, test them with the Scripture Eat the meat, spit out the bones, throw out what's wrong. Throw out what's wrong just because somebody has an error in one spot of their theology does not mean that they're wrong in everything. We are brothers and sisters in Christ who are fallible and we will occasionally have an error. And when we are shown in Scripture, the hope is that we would turn and go, oh, I didn't realize that. And we would change our minds. But sometimes we're stubborn. Sometimes. Always we're stubborn. There's a reason God calls us sheep. Have you ever worked with sheep? I have. They're mean. They bite. And they headbutt you. And you feed them and they tell you no. You are giving them food that they are eating and then they try to bite you until you go away. Sheep are mean and they're dirty. Oh, there's so many things. They, you know there's, there's sheep that if you don't move them, they will just eat the dirt. They'll just keep eating in this little three by three foot square and they'll just keep eating until they're chewing on rocks. And you'll be like, would you stop? move? Or, Matt, you know, and then they'll get mad at you for moving them. God calls us sheep. Doesn't that make you feel good? God calls us sheep. He says, hold fast to what is good. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. How do we hold fast to what is good? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, 
Think on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The God of peace will be with you. You want to hold fast to what is good? Think about the good things. And practice. Discipline yourself for the Christian life. Discipline yourself to do the work. And then finally, from every form of evil, abstain. The word abstain is one of my favorite words in the Bible. It means to refuse to dock. Like a boat that is being told to dock at a pier. Refuse to dock. Refuse. Don't even go near. Like Stay away from the, the dock itself. You don't even connect yourself to it. You stay in the ocean. You stay in Christ. When we studied Hebrews, we saw that this means to stay in the middle where Jesus is. To not go too far right, not go too far left, not get on a shore, not deviate into other things or other weird uh, genealogies and mythologies and all these various things that are unprovable but are great speculation and fun to goof around and talk about. But stay in the middle. Stay in Christ Jesus. Refuse to dock. James chapter 4, verse 7 tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. You have a power in refusing to dock in abstaining from sin that actually scares the devil away. It actually scares him away. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee from your youthful passions. That's a very polite way of saying grow up. Flee from youthful passions. Passions. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says to flee from sexual immorality. The Bible actually tells you to be pure. To flee from sexual immorality. It is good for you to pursue purity and cleanliness and righteousness and goodness. It is flat out in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 18. It says it. You are to flee from those things. So when dealing with the Spirit, we are not to quench the Spirit. We are not to despise prophecies. Don't get mad at people for speaking into your life. Don't do that. Test what they say. Eat the meat, spit out the bones, move on. You don't have to be angry at them for saying stuff. Listen, they're trying to exhort and encourage and console. Let them try. But test it with the Scripture. Test it with the scripture hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil we live at peace when with one another when we live at peace when we work for peace and remember what we talked about when we started this peace is not safe peace is not safe it requires an openness that can bring you a lot of pain. It requires a willingness to be broken. It requires it of you. To be at peace is not the way of security. To be at peace is the great venture and it must be dared. You must strive to be at peace. You must work to be at peace. And why can we be at peace? Because Jesus Christ has broken every bond of sin in his death on the cross and his resurrection, you have been cleaned of all that would hinder you from peace. You have been forgiven of everything that would hinder you 
from peace. He has forgiven every transgression and every brokenness and every error that has ever been in you. Past, present, and future. And He loves you. Oh, He loves you. And you can have peace because we have peace in Him and peace together. Lord God, we pray that we would have peace. That at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, we would look like people of peace and live at peace together.